like me and a lot more like Jesus. And so may he live his life in us and through us as we talked about last week. So, (laughs) we're taking steps for getting back together more and more. And it does my heart good. I got a text from our brother Anthony this morning. And uh, he said he took more steps than he's been able to take in a long time. So praise God, he is on the mend after three major back surgeries. Uh, God is healing him. So keep praying for Anthony. Uh, we have our sister Beth Freet, and I don't mean to embarrass your sister, but we're just glad to have you back and to be in our presence. So, And she's been walking a long road with her own health. And so, um, again, it's just beautiful to see how the Lord is kind of bringing us back together. And next week, even more in this room, being able to get together. So I'm excited for that. So, looking at something, if you've been in the evangelical world for a long time, it might be a blast from the past. This is from Rebecca Manley Pippert from the book Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, if you're familiar with that book. She says, whatever controls us is really our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord, whatever that is, of our life. I don't know what you think about that. But let me ask you, if someone were to look at your life, what would they say controls you? Is the Lord of your life, is your God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how much does he have control of your life? Or when push comes to shove, is there something else that seems to be in charge? You see, we live in a world where there are many different gods competing for loyalty. And and I'm not just talking about different types of religion. I'm talking about things, even good things, that we've made into gods, into idols, if you will, because we're looking to them for life. That could be wealth, that could be fame or celebrity, it could be pleasure, it could be political or social ideology, it could be sports and entertainment. I live and die with my sports team. Achievement. Or career success. How successful are you compared to others? And even self as a God. My self-reliance. My self-assertion. My self-realization. And perhaps with that, these words might resonate to us today. This is from the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. Second half, it says, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let me say that again. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And by the way, if you want to track along with the scriptures today, we're going to be in Judges chapter 1. If you want to crack your Bible open there today. But that statement rings true in a lot of ways for our modern society. Does it not? What pleases us in our mind is right. 
What we feel is right because we feel it. And sometimes we chafe that someone else might assert control or might say that something is truly right or truly, truly wrong, even if it's God himself. And as I said, we're going to start a new series through the book of Judges. And that's right after Joshua. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth. How unkind of Joshua to judge Ruth. Anyone get that? Okay, thank you. I'll be here all week. Thank you. Chapter 1. It's a story of God and his people. And if you look at, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, it is a wild book. I mean, it is kind of like the Wild West. It's like the wild frontier. And you know who really like it? Who likes it? It's usually young men. Because there's a lot of action, a lot of cool stuff. But it is, it's just crazy. Because wild things happen because of the rebellious choices. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes that God's people make. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say if they were to make a movie of the book of Judges, which is a period of 350 years, it would be rated R, if not NC-17. It's just brutal. It's just brutal. And there's a pattern that repeats itself. And, and folks, I'm not looking to shock anybody, okay? And that, that's not my purpose here. I'm just trying to be honest with, with the book. There's a pattern that repeats itself. It starts out with God's people rebelling. They kind of forget God and do their own thing. And then God removes his protection from his people. And they feel oppressed by other nations around them. And then they cry out to God, God, we sinned, we blew it, we forgot you. Please come and rescue us. And then God raises up a rescuer, a judge, and then the people enjoy peace under that rescuer, under that, that judge, for as long as they live. And then that judge dies. And the whole pattern repeats itself. Now it's interesting, I mean, like I said, this is a period over 300 years. And you would think as the people see this, they would get better. Like, oh, you know, we made a mistake with the last judge period we went through. Let's, let's try and improve. But it actually gets worse. With every judge, things seem to get worse. A widening circle of rebellion. A widening circle of people doing their own things. And even the judges are quite, quite flawed. So, so there's some themes we're going to see as we go through this, and we're going to go through this during the summer, um, and we'll have myself and some others preach to this book. But the first thing I want to point to is that of just human nature. That of human nature. When we're left to our own devices, we don't get better as people. We tend to get worse. It's the whole issue of human depravity. Our sin nature at work. And when we cast God out of the equation, when we do what's right in our own eyes, things don't get better, they get worse. If we're just looking for a modern example, look back at the 20th century. Just all the, the things that have changed. Education, technology, uh, medicine, medicine, prosperity. Instead of things getting better, we've just found better ways to cheat people to rip them off 
and better ways to kill them. We become more efficient in evil. That doesn't mean some good things haven't happened. But I'm telling you, if we're looking to ourselves and all those human you know, progress things, that hasn't been a savior to us. Number two, God really wants lordship. That is, he wants to be God of every part of our life, not just little parts. Even the Lord Jesus, when he's on the scene, he says, you know, if anyone will come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. But oftentimes we're trying to piecemeal things. I like following Jesus here. I don't like following him in this area. And it gets us in trouble. And Jesus is not asking us that because he wants to dominate our lives. He wants to give us his life, is what he wants to do. Remember what he said in John 10.10. You know, the evil one only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I've come to give you life, and that you might have life to the full. Third of all, what we're going to see is that we do indeed need a Savior. We are unable to save ourselves, not just from death. Remember, we've talked a few weeks about the hope of the resurrection and how Jesus has dealt with that. But we need to come and save us from ourselves, to change us, to transform us. That last song we sang, I need Jesus to come and make me a little bit more like him rather than myself. I can't do that. But Christ can do that in me if I'm in him. And we're going to look at, as I said, some rescuers that are are flawed, but ultimately they're going to point to the ultimate rescuer who is perfect, gracious, and eternal. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. It also shows our continual need for spiritual renewal. You know, when you make a spiritual decision and you move forward with it, that's great. It's a great stake in the sand, but things don't stay static, right? You're either moving towards God or you're moving away from him. The people of God, they, they, make, they put a, sand, a stake in the sand. They make a covenant with, with God on Mount Gilgal when they come into the land. But they end up starting moving away from him. And so we continually need to be looking to that. Are we moving towards him or are we moving away? And, and when we feel like we're moving away, to correct our course and move back toward him. And last of all, what we're going to see is that God is God. That God is God. He's holy. He's the source of all righteousness. And he repays sin and evil. But number two, he is gracious and he's merciful. He does not treat us as our sin deserves. Number three, he's faithful when we are unfaithful. (laughs) The people of God make a covenant from him, they're unfaithful, but God still keeps his side of the bargain, still keeps his covenant. And last of all, he is sovereign. He has control over everything, even when it doesn't seem like it, when it just seems like chaos reigns, and things seem out of control, and we don't need to seek to control him, but we need to allow ourselves to be controlled by him, to let him rule and reign in us. Let him be God. And so as we go through this book of the Judges, we're going to identify ourselves 
oftentimes with the flaws of the people, the flaws of the judges themselves, but we're also going to be encouraged to see God's faithful and gracious hand throughout the whole time. So we don't need to be discouraged even when we see human failure because God still has this. So let me pray, and then we're going to dig into this introduction to the book of Judges today. So Lord Jesus, again, one of the things I want to remember is that we need you as our Savior. You have come, you have lived the life we couldn't live, you paid the price we couldn't pay, and you've rescued us from the foe we couldn't rescue ourselves from. And now I pray that you would stir up your Holy Spirit within us and draw us to yourself. Help us to see the shadows of you in this Old Testament book and how you want to be the Lord of everything in our life. You want to have rule and dominion. Again, not to dominate us, but to give us life that we can only have in you. So use my words today, Lord. Use your word to do your work in our hearts. Help us to respond to you and the life you want to give us, give to us. And Lord, if there are areas where we need to change, where we need to repent, where we need to turn back to you, would you, you give us the grace to do that. Not to find fault with us, Lord, but to correct our course again, that we might have life and have it in you. So Lord Jesus, again, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So big picture, storyline of the Old Testament, right? God reaches down and he calls a man named Abram. And he says to him, I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you. (laughs) You don't know where it is, but just follow me. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And I'm going to give you the land that you sojourn through. I'm going to give that to your descendants. And you and your offspring, your seed, are going to be a blessing to all the nations. And by the way, that's Jesus, if you don't know. And so, Abraham passes this blessing on to his son Isaac, the the child of promise, who was born in his old age, and who passes that on to his son Jacob, who has 12 sons, who become the tribes of Israel. Question mark. Can you recall who all the sons of Jacob are? Just a thought. As you read your scriptures, it'd be good to know those names because you can see God's fingerprints of faithfulness along the way. There's not going to be a test. I'm not going to correct it, but I just, just something to be thinking about because we're going to see those names pop up today. And then God takes this group about, about 70, a clan of 12 sons, about 70, and he's going to take them down to Egypt for about 430 years. And they're going to go from 70 to a million plus people. And they're going to be enslaved by the Egyptians because they become too numerous for them. And then God raises up a deliverer. Actually, God is the deliverer, but a leader named Moses who will take them out of the land. And God will take them out into the desert, reveal himself through his law, and get them to the edge of the promised land, but they will not go forward in faith. Because they're giants in the land. And so, 
they send up ten spies, ten spies say they're too big, they're too great, they're too great, they're two spies that say, no, 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 look how, where God has brought us, he will help us conquer the land. Those guys' names are Caleb and Joshua. That's important, remember those names. And they don't go in, they're faithless, and God takes them back into the desert for 40 years to let that generation die out and so their children can come back to that same place and enter the land 40 years later. So this is where we pick up the story. Moses dies. And the leadership role is handed over to Joshua, one of those two spies. And he leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River the Ark of the Covenant stops in the middle. The water piles up. The wa- people walk across dry lands, kind of Red Sea number two. And they get in the land, and God allows them to conquer. And if you are familiar with the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, as the walls come tumbling down, God brings them into the land to conquer the land, the land that was promised to them. And so for the most part, in the book of Joshua, you see the conquest of the land. They conquer most of it. But there's still little vestiges left. Okay? And this is where the judges pick up, because Joshua is going to die. And the people need to continue on the mission they've been called to. Now, I want to stop here, because as I told you, Judges is pretty brutal. They're going to come into this land and conquer it. Kill whole villages, kill whole cities, men, women, and children. And it's hard for us, kind of through modern sensibilities, to kind of go, well, what do you mean by that? A couple of things you need to keep in mind. Number one, this is God still revealing himself in salvation history. Okay? But there's some other things going on here as well. So these things, I want, I want to just have, have these things to hang, hang your hooks on as, as we go into this. Number one, God is going to use Israel to bring his judgment on the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, okay? In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, Abraham has a dream, and he tells Abraham that he's going to take his people down into Egypt and keep them there for about 400 years until... The sin of the Amorites is full. The sin of the Amorites is complete. Those are the Canaanites. Until their wickedness has come to full fruition, and then he's going to come back and judge them. And he's going to use Israel to do it. He's going to use these 12 tribes. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, he says, don't make any treaty with them. Wipe them out. And again, it seems very harsh. We have to understand... (laughs) that these people are not innocent people. Uh, one of their practices is child sacrifice to please the God. They're also trying to dominate other nations around them. Maybe they're not the most wicked people in history, but they're not the most righteous people in history. Number two, God did give them time to repent, and they didn't. Number three, and this is, goes along with the song we sang earlier, you are God alone. God is the ultimate arbiter of what is right, 
what is wrong, what is just, when justice comes. Because we see very clearly in Genesis chapter 19, God brings justice to two towns, Sodom and Gomorrah. You've heard the term hellfire and brimstone. That's where that's from, from the, from the King James Version. These, this sulfur rains down on that whole city and God judges them. He does it personally. In this case, though, he's going to use Israel as his tool. And that's where we struggle with, right? Because we say, well, wait a minute, when you use a human agent, it's like, is this group more righteous than this group? Are these people better than others? And that's a fair question to ask. Because according to the scriptures, right, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So, you know, we have to come to grips with that. It's like, you know, why, why is mercy coming my way and why is judgment coming someone else's way? That's a, that's a fair question. But we have to understand that God is the arbiter of what's judged, what's right and what's wrong. Okay? And sometimes he'll use a crooked stick to draw a straight line and accomplish his purposes. So, God uses Israel to judge the Canaanites. Number two, God has made a promise to give the land of Canaan to Israel, just as he promised. Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. This is what, what God says to Abram. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt, that's down south, to the great river Euphrates up north, the land of the Canaanites and Canaanites and Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Raphites. He reiterates that when Joshua comes into the land and they're about ready to go. He says, I will uh, see, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, to all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you, and will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. This is a tough task, Moses. I mean, tough task, Joshua and the people of God, because you will lead these people to inherit a land I swore to the ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. I've revealed what I require. And do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Again, this is not a plan for a Hebrew nation of world domination. It's just God saying, this is the land I promised, and this is what I'm giving you. It's going to be a tough task. Go for it. Move forward. Number three, God commanded, now this is hard, God commanded the removal of the Canaanites lest they become a snare to the Israelites. Okay? And there are many, many passages I could name. I'm just going to do one. For time's sake. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 through 18. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Now listen to this. Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. 
You can't allow these people to remain here because they're going to lead you astray. So follow through, obey. And unfortunately, we see that this warning comes into to play, not for the good. And by the way, before I, we get into Judges itself here, we're almost there, I promise. Understand that God does draw some of the Canaanites to himself. There's a prostitute. That's the last person we would think that God would draw to himself, right? Named Rahab in the, in the city of Jericho. And he draws her to himself, and she becomes part of Israel. And by the way, her genealogy is in the line of King David, and her genealogy is in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm, interesting. And you can read about her. She's in the, in the Hall of Faith fame in Hebrews chapter 11. God also calls a group called the Gibeonites to himself. And even though they kind of use deception to make, an, a, make a covenant with Israel, God brings them in to be part of Israel, and at the end they become part of the whole worship system if you follow up on what happens to them. And then one more person I want to point to. She has her own book. Her name is Ruth. She's a Moabitess. And yet she comes into the land of Israel for, forsaking her country, her gods, and coming to that of the living God. And by the way, she's also in the line of David, also in the line of, of uh, Jesus. And that happens all during this time at the very end of the Judges. So we see that God is, is drawing men and women to himself. This is not an issue of ethnic cleansing is where I'm going here. This is an issue of faith. Are you going to follow the false gods of this world, or are you going to follow the living God? And that's where life is. So, Joshua dies. The tribes need to fully claim their territory. And as we get started, we see what I call a strong tribe sets a good tone. Pick it up at verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up? First, to fight against the Canaanites. And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. It's one of the tribes. I have given the land into their hands. And the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, another tribe, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. Here's one of the reasons why they invite the, 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 the Simeonites. Their territory is right next door. It's like, hey, come, come help us, and we'll, we'll come and help you. Okay? So that's what's going on here. And when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. So what you don't know, perhaps, at this point, is that Judah is the strongest or most numerous tribe in Israel. Okay? And this strong tribe has success. And what comes about is that a Canaanite strongman gets justice. Pick it up at verse 5. And there they found Adonai Bezek. The word Adonai in Hebrew means Lord. So he was Lord Bezek. We apply that to the Lord God Almighty. We apply that to other, other leaders. But Adonai Bezek, and they fought against him, and they put to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek uh, fled, and they chased him and caught him 
And listen to this. And they cut off his thumbs and toes. This is where judges get brutal. Then Adonai Bezak said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Ooh. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Again, according to our modern sensibilities, this may just seem brutal, like, you know, unusual, unfair and unusual punishment. But Adonai Bezak, you know how he sees this? He sees this, I'm getting what I deserved. This is what I did to other kings and other leaders I conquered. I humiliated them. I cut off their toes. I cut off their thumbs. And I made them scrape for food under my table. And I laughed at it. And I used it as an assertion of my dominance. Because I call myself Adonai, Lord Bezek. And now God is repaying me for what I did. I'm reaping what I'm sowing. God will not be mocked. And he's using Judah as the tool. Verse 8. Then the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and also took it. And they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. And after that, Judah went on down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills, and they advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai, Ahiman, and Talman. We have no idea who those, those people are, at least in that one sentence. But they are sons of Anak, who was a giant. So these are three giant men. Three Andre the Giants living in this, this Kiriath Arba, this Hebron. Okay? And somebody in the tribe of Judah has to come and root these giants out. And you know who it is? It's a guy named Caleb. A guy who's 85 years old. A guy who had to wait all this time, walking with the children of Israel through the desert to finally get his inheritance. And God said, surely I will give this land. And, and he, says, he says, to, says to Joshua, give me, give me the town where the giants are. Give me the town where the giants are. For I know the Lord will give them into my hands. Now if you want to read about him, the whole story is more played out in Joshua chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. And he says, I'm 85 years old and I'm strong as I was when I was 40 years old and went into the land. That might have been a statement about physical strength. It's probably more a statement about his faith and whom he believed God to be and whom he believed God was what he was doing and that he was faithful, even against giants, even when it gets difficult, when it gets tough. When it doesn't seem like I have the resources to do it, this 85-year-old guy is going to put these giants to flight. And here's why I'm making a big deal about this. Because the special focus now becomes on a strong faith. Okay? Verse 11. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage 
to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Saphir. Now, again, this is different than how we do marriage here, right? We don't, men don't usually offer up their daughters. But it seems like Caleb the giant killer is auctioning off his daughter. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is Caleb the man of faith is looking for a husband of faith to marry his daughter. I want a husband for my daughter who has the same faith like me, that will approach a difficult situation and trust what God has said He's going to do and see it through. That's who I'm looking for. And what, what man of God doesn't want that for their daughter? Someone whose faith is ultimately in the Lord, and especially in Jesus Christ. And a man steps up. His name is Othniel, and we're going to see him a little bit later. The son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Exa in, to him in marriage. Yeah, Othniel, you have the faith that we need to have in the Lord God. And so I give you my daughter, because that's who I want to walk with my daughter through life. A man who trusts the Lord to meet and take care of you, because he is our life. Caleb's transferring that faith over to the next generation. If you read verses uh, 14 and 15, then Caleb will give land to Othniel and Exa, and as well as some springs as well. So again, this is, this is progress. It's good. Things are going along famously. In fact, now Judah reciprocates for Simeon, verse 17. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, with their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath. And they totally destroyed the city, therefore it was called Hormah, which means destruction. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, and each city with its territory. And the Lord was with the men of Judah. This is going along swimmingly. But something happens to knock them off their game. And what I call this is common sense starts to override faith and obedience. Look at verse 19, or the second half of it, I should say. They took possession of the hill country. Listen to this. But they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. They had iron chariots. Now maybe what's happening here is not so plain, but... Here's what's going on. It's fear of technology superiority. Those guys have iron chariots. They're going to run us over. We can't attack those guys. There's no way. They're just going to run us over. And they've lost sight of the Lord who has brought them into the land. And all they can see is that they're outgunned. Technology-wise. Again, Caleb is right next to this as a contrast. Verse 20. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove out three sons of Anak, three sons of a giant. Time out. Let's do a little history lesson. What happened? God brought us out of Egypt. He helped us cross the Red Sea. He kept us alive 40 years in the desert. And then when he brought us into the land, he stopped the the river of the the Jericho. We went around Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, they all fell down. 
Don't you think God's hand is in this? But all they can see is the technology. All they can see is that they are outgunned and they lost sight of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Because things have gotten more difficult here. The circumstances have changed. They're facing the technology challenge, right? But when things get difficult, whose strength do you rely on? Your own? Your own wisdom? Your own resources? Your own abilities? Or that of the God who called you into this? To do something that maybe is beyond yourself. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's way beyond what you can do. But not beyond what He wants to do in you and through you. We're facing this as a church right now, as we're changing staff members, as we're trusting God to meet us financially. And even in, in my own family, my wife's life, I'm going to try and not give away too much, but my wife has got some changes in her business. She's changing groups that she's working with. And one of the things that she and the people that are changing, there was a, there was a website that kind of had a tongue-in-cheek kind of profanity, really. And Carrie, Carrie and, and Kelly Reynolds, who's part of that group, they said, look, we're Christ followers. I'm not sure we can get behind that. And this could have blown up the business deal. They could have just gone south. But to say, no, God has brought me here. God has met us, taken care of us, and we're going to trust Him as we move forward. And to integrity say, you know what, I, I'm a Christ follower. i got a problem with this. And they did, and the, and the boss man said, yeah, you know, we've been thinking about getting rid of that anyway. But that was a real moment of saying, am I going to trust God? Or am I going to you know, just swallow it and use my own common worldly sense about this? Are there moments where we have to trust God even though we can't see what He's going to do? How He's going to solve this issue? But what's happening here is the strongest tribe, the most numerous, is they're backing off. They're backing off and trusting God. And it becomes contagious through the whole nation of Israel. And this is how I'm going to wrap things up here. Listen for those names of these tribes, okay? Verse 21, the Benjaminites. The Benjaminites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. That's going to be a snare. And then in verses 22 through 26, combined tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, also their, their forefather is Joseph, they have success in a town called Luz, which eventually becomes Bethel. But then when the, the tribes break up themselves, not so much. Verse 27, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblim, or Megiddo, or the surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites determined to, were determined to live in that land. And when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but, but never drove them out completely. There's a compromise here. 
and it doesn't work out well. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. The Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nehal. And the Canaanites lived among them. But Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. You see the pattern? Things get hard. The Canaanites are more determined to stay than the people of God are to obey. And they just wait for, you know, their strength to grow so they can constrict, constrict, excuse me, conscript forced labor of the Canaanites. But they're not looking to God's strength, they're looking to their own. It's earthly wisdom, and they have earthly consequences. Look what happens to the tribe of Asher in verse 31. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko, or Sidon, or um, Alab, or Akzib, or Helpa, or Aphek, or Rehob. The Asherites, listen to this, lived among the inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. So here's what happens. It's not that the Canaanites are living among them. The Asherites are living among the Canaanites. They are they're conforming to the, to the Canaanites. Neither did Naphtali, verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh, Beth Anathoth. And the Naphtalites too lived among the, the Canaanites inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anathoth became, became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites, the tribe of Dan, to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold Mount Heres, Aijalon, and Shebim. But then the power of the tribes of, when the power of the tribes of uh, Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Ammonites was from the Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. The Amorites had been successful in establishing a border in the land of promise. In the land that God had called his people to take over. They remained. They stayed there. You see what's happening? God called them into the land to start with a clean slate. But when things got difficult and the Canaanites stubbornly resist, the Israelites just use their own strength, their own common sense, until they're strong enough to oppress them. But they still live among the Canaanites and they influence them and they turn their hearts away from God. We're going to see this all throughout this book. And they become a snare for Israel. And their faith begins to erode towards the living God. And what results is rebellion and disobedience. Now folks, I don't think the application is either a holy war or a holy huddle. We are called to be salt and light. But there are some questions that come into this. Again, what is your God? Who is controlling you? Is it the Lord Jesus or is it other stuff? Is it the world around you? Is there something that the Lord is calling you to do that you've left undone? And it's becoming a snare for you. 
for your relationship with Christ? Are you trusting in your own common sense, your own strength, or, or that of the Lord? When something difficult comes, do you, do you look at your, your balance sheet and say, do I have enough what it takes within me? Or do you say, what has God called me to do? And then go forth in that strength. The Apostle Paul would say, I can do all things through him. That is Christ who strengthens me. Remember last week we talked about Christ. If you're in Christ, that Christ lives in you. And last of all, I asked the question, does, does Jesus have all of you? Or are you kind of piecemeal following him? Yeah, I'll give you this, but no, I, I can't give you this, Lord Jesus, because I'm not sure what you're going to do with it. I kind of like hanging on to it. But don't, do we know that that's just breeding destruction rather than life? So these are the questions we're going to be wrestling with as we go through this book. And Lord willing, he'll use, us, use it to draw us closer to the Lord, even when we find ourselves failing. Because if we confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, with that, let me pray and invite Bobby and the worship team to close us here. Lord, uh, again, this is a, a challenging book, and you're doing some things um, that may be hard for us to stomach at times. And, and it's not all you. It, you allow people to make choices, and those choices get to matter, and sometimes they are destructive, Lord but we have a Savior that we can call upon. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we're unfaithful. And Lord, if there's somebody who doesn't know you here today, would you draw that man, that woman to yourself? That they might be released from the one who wants to kill, steal, and destroy their lives. And come to you, Lord Jesus, the one who wants to give life to them. Life to the full and life eternal. And so, Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things.